Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. You've come to Thorn in Your Side. My name is M. My real name is Michael, but for your online listeners, uh, I am M. Here I am interviewing another Michael, Dr. Michael. <laughs> Michael's okay. From University, oh, I keep saying University of Western Sydney because I'm kind of used to that after um, doing my undergrad, but it's Western Sydney University. But then again, it's like I confuse that further by I'm accidentally calling it Wanderers University. <laughs> anyway, welcome, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. What is it that you do at WSU? I, I teach in the, the College of WSU, which is the, uh, the part of the uni that takes in the students that didn't make it first time from school. And uh, so we, they uh, come through and do a diploma and we have to get them uh, from that level through to uh, second year. Yeah, you were telling me about that just before we started recording. It sounds pretty cool. I imagine that you're finding a lot of students that, that perhaps might even be the first in their family to start doing uni oh, yeah, uni studies. Probably most of them, yeah. Yeah. I'm a first in family, yeah. Yeah. Which I was also, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, as am I. Yeah. As I've mentioned in, in previous episodes, I think by falling in with a bunch of lefty rat bags, it kind of informed the way I was going to proceed in uni and and how I was going to study, and basically just try to latch on to anything that helps explain my own life and uh, my own circumstances a bit better. I think that's what kept me honest. The lefty rat bag element, like how do you find that at WSU these days? Because I know, like I did most of my study at the Bankstown campus. When I used to be there, there was a bar, there was a lot of places where you could kind of congregate and loiter. These days, not so much. It's all designed to basically get in, get out, perhaps have lunch. Yeah, it is, that's right. And it is hard to kind of create that same dynamic in that way, yeah. You teach at a place called The College? Yeah, that's the, 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 the college is also at Bankstown. Oh, okay. I mean, it's, it, you have parts of the college at different uh, WSU campuses. Yeah. So, like, we, we've got a building in, within uh, Bankstown campus. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I teach in the social sciences. In our area, we, of course, we're discussing lots of... Lots of stuff that concerns uh, it concerns politics and uh, sociology and all that, all that kind of stuff. So we can, uh, you know, we we can sort of detect uh, when the, when there's a lefty sentiment among students and so on. And it, yeah, you know, when I was doing my undergrad at at your campus, <laughs> yeah. there was a bar, there was uh, places to congregate. We ended up occupying a student office for two weeks. <laughs> That's. Yeah, no, that's gone past the 20th year anniversary. We occupied for two weeks and um, they actually um, said, all right, well, well, we'll meet your demands because we've only got the one student services building and we need to use that. And this is before everything was put online, so mm. <laughs> people had to have that face-to-face -face contact and hand in forms and whatnot. So we were able to kind of break a circuit there. But anyway, that was the past. Not so much there these days. I would think. Like you said, you don't have the bar and that, that, that kind of atmosphere uh, quite the same way. I mean, obviously, students still, still do congregate to some extent, but it's not the same, and I think there's a lot more insecurity 
among the student body these days and also, you know, given, you know, the western suburbs are large percentage of the students work as well and so they're in for a bit to study and then they're out and, mm. and so on. So it's a little difficult to get that kind of uh, dynamic. So what are some of the things that's your expertise there, Michael? I know that we met because of our emerging views on Syria. Is that the sort of stuff you're able to cover during your lectures or is this very much a, a side thing that you look into? Not so much, no. I don't, we, 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 it's social sciences, so we do sociology kinds of subjects, community work. There's all, well, there is one international development uh, uh, unit that I, I run and that I've developed there. Okay. Um, that's, more about, uh, that's more about international development rather than the international relations kind of stuff. My, my Syria interest was more... I've been involved in uh, solidarity politics over the years. In fact, it goes right back to the early 80s. I was involved in Palestine work. And uh, we were in the Palestine Human Rights Campaign in the 1980s when it was less of a big kind of central issue as it is today. So I suppose I've just always had that interest. And, uh, okay, we support Palestinians' struggle for freedom uh, when other people also struggle for freedom, like the people in Syria against a a fascist regime, then uh, we uh, should also support their struggle uh, in the same way. Which some people, you know, a certain part of the left doesn't understand. They think that, well, if we support the Palestinian struggle, uh, we should have to oppose struggles against Arab regimes because they're supposedly supporters of the Palestinians, which is wrong on both counts. None of them ever have been. They've all stabbed Palestinians in the back repeatedly, particularly the Syrian regime, which, because I was around in the 80s, I, I was around when Assad father was trying to take over and destroy the Palestine Liberation Organisation, trying to kill Arafat, mm. uh, besieging Palestinian camps and so on and so on. So I was already kind of aware of that history. But the second thing is that even if that wasn't the case, uh, you can't... Solidarity is... It's all or nothing. You, you, We support struggle for freedom here, we support a struggle for freedom there. Otherwise, it's... Uh, what does your solidarity mean? So Assad Senior... What time of history would that have been? Uh, he <coughs> took power in a, a coup in 1970 and then he ruled till 2000 when he handed over to his son, Bashar. Uh, when I'm talking about is the 1980s. See, because I can think during the 1980s that a not-too-similar circumstance within lefty types emerged over Afghanistan, I would say where there was some support on the Soviet side of the the fight, whereas uh, I think there might have also been other support for more autonomous forces within Afghanistan. And then, of course, you'll have the more socio-democratic bent that will kind of look towards stuff that's more in line with US imperialist protectionism. I mean, I don't know as much about it as I'd like, but I do feel that there might be some potential similarities there and um, that created some ructions within within lefty discourse and where there might be some potential parallels between those times and, and what's happened now with Syria. And also I think Syria is, I would also argue, not as widely known as... Here I am talking like I was there, but I could barely walk. Um, but, yeah, it seemed the Afghanistan fight was a lot more apparent within Western lefty discourse compared to how Syria is now. 
So there's a few things there, Michael. Mm. What's your thoughts? Uh, I suppose one of the differences is that Afghanistan was a you know a major kind of fault line between the the superpowers in the in the in the Cold War. That was the last decade of the Cold War. So the, the U.S. Soviet confrontation. So Afghanistan was one of the lines, you know, like Vietnam had been and and so on and so on. And so yeah, there was a potential to say, oh well, we have to support the Soviets because they're against the Americans and so on. And, and damn the Afghans. I mean, you know, the Soviets bombed, um, you know, bombed Afghanistan terribly and, and uh, the Americans were supporting the, the most reactionary forces in, in Afghanistan as well. And, and it was, uh, it, it's been 40 years of uh, basically of occupation uh, of Afghanistan. The, uh, when the Soviets initially went in, they actually went in to overthrow their own the government they were, they put in, they were supporting to put in another faction of it because they thought the faction in power was making things worse and creating this sort of basically right-wing rebellion. The trouble is when you go in and invade a country and uh, change the leadership, even if you think you're putting in a more moderate leadership, the the reality is you're creating a situation where now there's, whatever the origins of the conflict, now there's um, obviously opposition to uh, a foreign superpower invading your country and deciding who rules you, especially when you come in with airplanes and start bombing places. So it was a disaster all round. Mm. One of the differences to now, though, is that that whole thing about Cold War and regardless of what people thought of the Soviet leadership, Stalinist Stalinist regime, oppressive regime, there was still a sort of conception that, okay, it had some connection to to a socialist kind of... um, world or a socialist economy whether that's correct or not I'm not I'm not talking about that I'm just saying that was a you know there was that kind of understanding among a lot of the left whereas since the collapse of the Soviet Union what does it mean to say that you're against America but supporting Putin's Russia Russia Putin's Russia doesn't have any pretense about having any connection to socialism Mm. As I said, regardless of what you think of Brezhnev and so on, there's no, there's no pretense here. It's a, it, Putin's Russia is the Russia of the oligarchs. Mm. It's the Russia of the, you know, the, after capitalism was restored, they grabbed all the wealth mm. of Russia, made themselves mega capitalists, and that's Putin's, Putin's regime. How is that, even theoretically, any more progressive than American imperialism? If we take it to Syria, um, we are seeing a variety of imperial interests attached to Syria. And you're seeing that through Russia mm. and how they are able to provide um, their, <laughs> their assistance within Syria and also how to produce their own capital flows within Syria. Mm. You have uh, an increasing amount of Turkish interest within Syria, where I think if Russia was the Woolies, Turkey would be the Aldi. Forgive my crude analogy, but that, that seems to be where it seems to be with the, the imperialist interest there. And then, of course, you've got the Assadists, who um, you might like to have a bit of a talk about how they interrelate with those two groupings there, Michael. But, of course, there's also um, the US, and they have some involvement. And Iran. And Iran as well. So there's a variety there, and I think... The rivalries within lefty discourse at the moment is what to make of that. 
I think there is still um, a maintenance of this Cold War logic where <coughs> a thing that is not the US is something to support, whether or whether or not it's Soviet, it doesn't matter. I think it's it's all putting your eggs into working out what's the biggest imperialist devil, and it seems to be America still. But I want to try to, to look at how these different powers are, are playing out within Syria. I'm very interested in Syria as a result because it seems to be a, a very much the epicentre of how geopolitics could play out and potentially play out in other regions. What's your thoughts there, Michael? It's uh, <laughs> hard to know where to start. It's true that Syria is a, a, a geopolitical landmine and, and there's all these... You said Russia, US, Iran, Turkey, mm. and Israel, and is all involved in in some way, and even the Gulf. But but the problem with it is that it it's not some kind of uh, equal contest in in Syria, um, and it's also, in my opinion, right, the rivalries, particularly between US and Russia, are exaggerated in a lot of discourse, um, and I think you have to take it back. Before, although we're interested in the geopolitics of it, now you have to take it back to the actual situation in Syria, uh, which all these powers are coming in on top of. And that is that in 2011, there was an impressive nationwide popular revolution uprising against um, a, a bloody and totalitarian dictatorship of the Assad family. That um, the Assad regime met it with machine guns and uh, killings and then it went to tanks and uh, and so on and so on until the the popular uprising started to take up arms firstly in self-defense mm. and you know soldiers were deserting saying we're going to protect our brothers and sisters instead of killing them mm. um, that's what's called militarization but in, in a sense it's just a normal uh, process in its in its origin but then that then that also meant the Assad regime then began using warplanes to bomb its cities. Mm. Um, warplanes, missiles, the whole works. And so you've got this incredible, incredibly bloody war going on, which, and then all kinds of other elements join in. I mean, uh, jihadist elements join in and so on and so on. But we have to remember that at the base of it were people who tried to fight for freedom then took up arms. That's the fundamental struggle there. Now, Russia has come in as, you know, the world's second superpower with its air force, bombing the hell out of Syria, bombing cities in Syria, bombing hospitals, bombing schools, bombing marketplaces in Syria. How's that different to the United States going into Vietnam and bombing the country to bits, right? There's not a... You know, so the, the Russian role is not comparable to the American role. You can criticise whatever you want about the American role, and I... I continually do, mm. but it's not the same thing. Um, there's parallels, though. Would that be a, a good point to make? Or I'd say there's a parallel between the Russia in Syria and the United States invasion of Iraq, uh, right? That's a parallel. Okay? The United States sent its army into Iraq, uh, invaded it, took it over, and so on, and then had to maintain a massive military presence to keep, you know, keep control of Iraq in, in, in Syria... Uh, Russia has come in, uh, and that's the one bombing the country. That's the there is that idea that Naomi Klein introduces with the shock doctrine. 
where you, you go in, US quite deliberately did this with a shock and awe tactic. You contribute to the crisis, you escalate it to the point where when it comes to restoration, a belligerent force like the US would set itself up as a place to mainly assist with the reconstruction. And that means that you've got um, a lot of say in terms of who you'd like to contract in for restoration within Iraq, in terms of control of government, repairing municipal works, building buildings again, all that sort of thing. I would, I would argue that Russia has taken a very similar tact mm. with Syria mm. um, in terms of how they bring in Russian business under the guise of, um, of restoring Syrian cityscapes civil life but at the same time this there is some sort of oligarchic flow of capital that um that russia is benefiting from and uh, like i said i think it, it there's a lot of uh, similarities between that that shock doctrine tactic that that can be employed mm. within syria by the likes of russia as it was with iraq and the us mm. absolutely yeah mm. uh, russia's carried out horrific I mean, the regime itself carried out horrific destruction even before Russia entered. Russia has participated in that, and now Russia controls uh, important parts of the Syrian economy. It's taken over its phosphate mines, for example. It's uh, it's taken over some Syrian military bases. Even in some in some cases, taken them completely. Even kicked out regime forces uh, from them. Um, it's uh, it's in a it's in a controlling position with, uh, you know, Syrian gas and, and, and so on. So it's... Uh, and, and then the, the whole reconstruction thing is... Um, it hasn't got off the ground very much yet because the, the, the society is... The, the, the state's still in chaos. You've got a quarter of the population, 6.6 .6 million people outside the country. Mm. You've got a similar number uprooted within the country. You've got 5 million within the northwest outside of the regime control. You've got another three million in the northeast outside of uh, regime control. Mm. In both cases, including millions of people uprooted from elsewhere in Syria. In that situation, you, and, and, and the, the regime has tried to carry out reconstruction uh, by uh, basically levelling cities, uh, former, basically former working class districts, shanty towns and so on, which were the base of the revolution um, and uh, from where the people have fled, okay, levelling them and uh, passing laws, law number 10, which basically stops those people from uh, getting back their homes, getting back their property. So they're building new cities for the, you know, for the bourgeoisie, basically, for the, for the people with money. Okay. So a very... Um Blunt, brutal form of the gentrification. Very, very blunt and, and brutal. Well, that's right. Marotta City, for example, is one of the <coughs> one of the big names of that kind of thing going on around in Damascus. Hmm. I would also argue that this isn't such a programmatic affair with the likes of Russia, Turkey, Iran. There are still cities that don't really have the status of, of order, but. I don't know, Michael. This is probably where I have the limits of my own knowledge within Syria. Would you say that there are any class-informed militant actions that are happening within those cities that are still up for grabs? I think that, that, that's not something that I can see uh, any evidence of at the moment. 
the, the regime is, is, has destroyed the, the social fabric of the country. It's destroyed, it's, it's uprooted millions of people. It's, it's difficult to, you know, it's, it's a struggle for survival at the moment. I think the best way to, to, uh, to really analyse it is actually acknowledging what's real and what's not. And I think that exposes the different lefty views. I would be a so partisan to say is it's, they're not exactly lefty views anymore, but it's that idea of denial. So there was no war. There was no events that transpired. There is no Russian imperialism. If it is, then it's not because it's not US imperialism, therefore it is good because it's Russia, they used to be a Soviet country, so that's close enough. You know, the, there's to me, there's a lot of romanticization going on, I feel, which to me might deny some real concrete analysis of what's actually going on. People that are talking like that are denying what's going on. They're, they're just looking at, they're just treating people as, uh, as objects for their geopolitical games there. They're, they're looking at it as a, ge a geopolitical chessboard and nothing else. And so people just, oh, well, they're not on our team, so they can go to hell in the rubble. That's, that's basically what they're saying. I agree that there's nothing left-wing about that kind of view at all. That's what I started off with, about you need to be consistent about supporting people's liberation. Look, they're saying Russia... Oh, well, it's not the Soviet Union, but it's close enough because it used to be. First of all, that's absurd. Second, even if it was, well, well so what? You, you, on what basis do you support the Assad regime itself, which is what Russia is there to, to support? The Assad regime is not a regime that has any progressive, progressive uh, credentials whatsoever. Okay, it's a, it's a regime of the oligarchy. Okay, Assad's brothers and cousins and, and family members control the economy. I shouldn't say control, that might still give the impression that it's some sort of state control. Own the economy. Mm. Okay, so look, Assad's cousin, Makhlouf, who now, he, now he's feuding with, right, was, you know, owns a huge part of the economic assets and uh, industries in Syria. And now there's other oligarchs that have come up connected to the war that are pushing him aside and that's why there's this, this conflict uh, among the families but these are all family these are oligarchic families this is a mega capitalist class we've talked a little bit before about that idea of degentrification there was that uh, rebuilding of cityscapes mm. where there is that embourgeoisement where it is housing for the increasingly rich you've got a bunch of displaced working class Syrians some may provide uh, diaspora internationally. Some want to come back, but what do they come back to? Because I, I am very much a fan of how class disparity can be played out geographically. <laughs> you, you can definitely see that within Sydney, but we are looking at, at a, a more precarious global south. What, what do you think if, if Syrians do come back is, is the way to be an enforcement within the countryside? What do you think there? I don't know. I mean, the, the, the first point is that the majority of uh, Syrians in exile saying, say they won't come back as long as the regime's in power for obvious reasons. They fear. They, don't, they, they aren't only fleeing the war. That's, that's the thing that we need to understand. Some of them are, I'm sure. Some of them would come back if there was just peace. 
but a lot of them, they will never come back as long as that regime's there because what are you going to come back to? Um, and then, as you say, uh, a lot of them, they've lost, uh, they, they've lost their homes. Now, I mean, let's say things settle down a bit. Big push from the you know the United States and to extent Russia itself, right, is what they call the political solution, and that is some kind of a, uh, compromise, whereby the uh, the regime uh, carries out some sort of a constitutional change, uh, which allows for you know some sort of elections, and um, you know I mean given the circumstances, it's not going to be very radical change. I mean, given the total disempowerment of the, the, pe the, the people, but some kind of change which allows a degree of stability, broadens the regime a little bit, and uh, and therefore allows for investment and reconstruction. Now, you know, if that if that begins to happen, even though that's a that will be a counter revolutionary stability, it still offers the the possibility that okay, if people, if there's peace, people can rather than just fighting for survival, everyday survival, people can actually start to focus again on, yes, on class, on on, on struggling over uh, uh, who has power, on struggling, on struggling over these class issues. But the, the point is that therefore, as long as there's that dividing line, it's like. Okay, we're here, there, there. That's the conflict. Rather than class against class, you got. Or oh, we're just fighting for our lives here. And it could also be further simplified into something not too dissimilar to the Risk board game. <laughs> that's well, yeah, that's right. Meanwhile, yeah. in the northwest, you've got the you got where the, the the Kurdish forces, Syrian Democratic forces, are. They have control there. They've got control there because they're backed by the United States. Yeah. Not necessarily because the United States loves them, but because. They were the United States ally in uh, in destroying ISIS in the east. All right. So yep. Russia and Iran both supported the regime, but now in this stage that the regime has sort of won the military battle, there's a battle over over loot and who gets the rewards. So there's rivalry between Russia and Iran, and Russia's the one that's kind of winning. It's like Iran wants to get that loot corridor happening. <laughs> That's right, and Russia wants to stop that happening. Yeah, Russia yeah. wants was increasingly taking over the state apparatus. Yeah, um, and uh, making sure it's the dominant one. And um, meanwhile, Israel is coming in, bombing the Iranian uh, positions, but making clear to distinguish that from the regime positions. Yeah, Russia's got the anti-aircraft system in Syria. Um, it never. <laughs> It never stops Israel from bombing Iran. See, to me, this is all very interesting, Michael, in the fact that you're seeing geopolitics happening between powers and with proxies and it impacting upon a general population and also different militias. But you're seeing all this stuff playing out and this used to be a game for the US, but the US aren't really there anymore. I guess I'm giving myself my own little segue there, Michael, because I have been itching to kind of introduce this discussion because, uh, yeah, we've we've had a very odd weekend. I think Trump is going to keep himself in the Oval Office and um, hopefully he has good Wi-Fi access so he can <laughs> rule by Twitter and set up some sort of surrogate social media regime between now and January 21st. But this changeover of presidents, this is going to impact upon foreign policy, obviously. Um, I think Trump had a very, very clear position on Syria 
in that there was no position and he did his best to eliminate the US from the equation as a result. With Biden coming in, where do you think things stand? Is there going to be an increased US presence again, do you think? Or will it be more like, okay, well, Trump was able to break a mould there, so he did a very difficult thing where we wish we could do. Where do you think a Biden administration will go here? It's very hard to, to make projections. Uh, no one ever wants to predict, <laughs> Michael. I mean, you, you, the trouble is when you predict, you, in, in a few months you end up being wrong. Now, uh, Trump on... Syria, right from the before his election, he said, um, "US positions wrong. We should be supporting Assad and Putin in fighting ISIS," which was an absurd thing to say because most of Assad and Putin's bombing was not on ISIS. Yeah. Um, but that's, in other words, Trump spoke just like any kind of left tanky. Assad versus ISIS. Well, the, the Islamophobia, like yeah. you're confusing militia with <coughs> with, is, is, with Islamic jihadists. Yeah, the Democratic uh, rebels and so on, who are all, all, so all the same as ISIS, even though the, the Democratic rebels fought ISIS themselves. Yeah. Um, they drove them out of the whole of Western Syria in 2014. Never mind. The, the, so later on, Trump's position was, yeah, we're going to leave Syria, but meanwhile they were still involved in the war against ISIS. So Trump stepped up the war against ISIS, and of course ISIS, uh, well, I mean, I'd like to see ISIS wiped off the face of the earth, obviously, but the trouble is the way Trump did it was to say, well, we're going to kill them and kill their families, as he uh, brilliantly put it, and um, they levelled the city of Raqqa, and uh, thousands and thousands were killed in um, in the battle, but once it was over... His view was, okay, we're getting out of here. Now, they're still there to some extent. They did make a couple of withdrawals. They've still got, the US has still got troops there with, uh, with the SDF, but they, at one point, they betrayed them and let, let Turkey take over a part of the border um, in the northeast because they did a deal. And then they said, okay, that's enough. Um, we're going to stay here uh, because there's oil here. It sounded very cynical. Uh, for Trump, we're going to keep the oil. What it really meant was that they're going to use that position, we're going to use the, the, the alliance they created with the SDF okay, as, as a point of pressure on the regime to um, agree to this sort of political solution that I was talking about before. And obviously, you know, a point of pressure for the US to get its kind of, you know, its kind of bit in. Trump, w- what he did in the, in the first year was cut off all remaining American, it wasn't very much that Obama was doing, but like there was a certain amount of support to the rebels, uh, military support to the rebels, mostly to co-opt them to fight ISIS later, to push them that direction. And also, more importantly in a way, was a certain amount of support to civil society in the areas outside regime control, so they could, you know, set up, you know, councils and get keep things running. So Trump cut off both altogether. He said that the support to the rebels was dangerous and wasteful. And then he said, we've just ended this 230 million ridiculous payment to Syria, referring to the civil society money, which was going to get educational institutions and all kinds of useful stuff, right? Mm. It's just the US, it had been the Obama era way to kind of, you know, have a little bit of influence. They never gave them the kind of arms necessary to defend themselves from warplanes, for example. They never gave them the kind of arms that would help them. Uh, win or even balance the regime, but allowed them just to survive. Trump cut all that off. Now, Biden's coming in and he's, he's not 
I think, let's be clear, he's not about to uh, restore anything very much. He has said we're going to uh, work with Syrian civil society again. And, and it's logical from a... It would be a good thing in general, but it's also just logical from a US imperialist point of view that why do you, why do you totally cut yourself out of all influence? Um, Trump just said Syria is sand and death. Mm. That's his, his words. I think Biden has a, has a bit, bit of a more active view. Why do they want some sort of political solution? Because there's chaos in Syria. If Assad was just like some dictator who suppressed his people and then it was stable, well, then that would be terrible. But you could say, OK, well, nothing you can do about it. That's stable. But there is no status quo. And if, no there is, if there is one, then it only lasts so long There's before no stability. it changes. Yeah. The stability is impossible in this situation. So the role of Trump was basically to let Assad win, which he did, hmm. right? but then say, OK, now let's get something that you need to compromise. But is it going to be in terms of the discussion about you know superpower confrontation and so on? I, I don't think either Trump or Biden are pushing that. And that's where I would say that I'd come from in terms of Trump setting some sort of precedent in terms of a new US foreign policy where before Trump, and I think we were kind of seeing a kind of recede under the uh, Obama administration, America was starting to recede as a any superpower. And this is why I'm particularly interested in, in a place like Syria for that purpose, where if you if Biden does not look to reintroduce a, a US presence within Syria, what does that suggest? That um, we are looking at a, a geopolitical world now that involves a variety of imperialisms rather than the, the, the one big one. And for me, the point is to identify and analyse that rather than ignore it or pretend it's something benevolent because it's against you've got to take into account that you know this began as a, <coughs> as a as a popular uprising and it began as an action of the syrian people and so basically the the, the powers coming in are reacting in different ways they're just pushing their interests but reacting in different ways to that mm. um, the way the regimes reacted has been so incredibly destructive that that's why you think of <coughs> uh, destruction in order to to then rebuild and make money, if you like. Mm. Capital has reached its, its limits of expansion, so you have to destroy in order to uh, in order to rebuild to, uh, to to profit. I think the regime was just thinking, we can do this because nobody really cares. Despite the fantasies of the Western tanky left, that this is all some regime change plot from the US. It's very obvious that after nine years, the US has barely touched uh, the place. The, the regime's been allowed to get away with stuff that you know no one else could ever have got away with. Well, I guess it brings me to, um, to a final point here, Michael, in, in terms of, um, of the, the, the Western lefty analysis and what role that they play. Uh, we've covered how potentially distortive some of that analysis can be. There's some figures that uh, go between the lines and where the, the jury might be out in terms of how uh, effective their views and accounts can be. To that, I'm thinking of Robert Fisk and 
heaven forbid if um if I uh, uh, abuse the anarchist evangelicals here, but <laughs> Noam Chomsky even with um some of his views of on Syria. Um, so what do you think there, Michael? What is the role? What is the duty that um that Westy Lefty dialogue and movements have with interest in Syria? role they should have had was to give solidarity from the start to, uh, to the people being uh, bombed and uh, oppressed, terrorised. Uh, most of the most of the left didn't do that. Mm. Uh, I shouldn't say, I mean, some of the left did. Right? Um, I don't want to generalise too much. Unfortunately, there was this so-called, unemphasised so-called anti-imperialist census among certain part of the left that, as you said before, just viewed, well, anything that's not... If it's not directly being attacked by US imperialism, in this case being attacked by Russian imperialism, yeah. well, then either that's, at best, that's not our problem, or at worst, we have to support the other imperialism and the monstrous regime. Um, all based on entirely false premises, even if, the, even if that method was valid, which it's not. Yeah. And this, this has totally distorted uh, left discourse. And so, you know, people like, uh, like Fisk and Chomsky, who, you know, made, people who have made you know, enormous contributions in, in their lives, uh, have, they, have then, you know, have, they've degenerated. Why have they degenerated? I mean, you know, Chomsky's an old man. He's in his 90s. I don't want to be too harsh on him. He's, uh, I don't know how well I'll be thinking when I'm in my 90s. Um, Fisk has just died. We don't want to talk to, too ill of the dead, but I mean, you know, he's, he he was somewhat younger than that. He, he was Fisk is someone that you know people followed because he was a great journalist back in, in back in Iraq. You know, he'd go off at embedded journalism. To me, it does produce that idea of what duty Western analysis has with trying to produce a very true analysis and observation on what's going on in Syria. As you're saying, Robert Fisk took a, a journalistic angle with it. Even at the beginning of Syria, Fisk was actually okay. And in the first few years, Chomsky was actually excellent. Yeah. Um, so h- how do we analyse what, what happens? If, if, we, if you leave Fisk aside for a moment, why did Chomsky somewhat change? I mean, he's still not, you know, he's still not an Assadist. He's, he'll still say the regime is horrific. But he'll take on a whole lot of these kinds of uh, tropes of, is about US imperialism and so on and so on, just ignoring the reality. I think, you know, I, I think to some extent it's, you know, leftists find it difficult to break out of a certain milieu. This is the, this is the, the social milieu around them. They become a bit of an echo chamber. Well, you know, I better say the right thing and I'm going to start thinking that. Because what he was saying earlier in the conflict was was very very good. Yeah, actually, I think it's that case of of new things happening, new political things happening, and from there it is the there is the challenge of how one adopts their own analysis to that, or do they try to crowbar what they already know into that situation and stamp their own impression as a result? Mm. Um, I feel like. Chomsky might be doing that a little bit. See, Chomsky's one of the one of the better ones of the, if you're talking about the, some of the of the left luminaries uh, 
who are, you know, you've got people like Max Blumenthal who, you know, at the, at the beginning of the conflict in Syria, he quit his job in Al-Akbar, an Arabic newspaper, because it was turning Assadists. He released a wonderful declaration saying people have the right to resist, all people have the right to resist, something like that. Yeah. Okay. He went to refugee camps in Jordan and he said that everybody, all the refugees, just want... He said, I don't support Western intervention, but all the refugees want it because they're just desperate. Uh, and he talked about their stories of what, what had happened to them under Assad. Very good stuff. Then at a certain point, suddenly he turned um, and now he's, he's the most vicious, vicious Assadist. People I think he thought, became a bit of a journalistic junkie. Hmm. <laughs> Well, I think what we have been able to um, to have a go at doing tonight, Michael, is some ways of unpacking what could be happening in Syria, looking at all the different political issues, all the different political players. I don't think it is so classical to say, like, there isn't that classical notion of competing sides, seeing, as I mentioned before, having everything played out on a risk board game table. Uh, I feel like there is um, a lot more complexity than that. I feel that's the challenge for lefty discourse to identify that, critique it, act in solidarity to it. It was yeah. good, Michael, to, to bring you in and to be able to, to kind of indulge that a little bit. I, I have learnt that uh, we're Western Sydney alumni. Um, <laughs> we're both uh, Westy rap bags. <laughs> A lot of good stuff. Thanks for your time, Michael. I'd like to, to catch up with you later on sometime if there's any potential developments in Syria. Sure. If Biden comes back and, and decides to spread his hubris out in the Middle East, let's see what happens, see eh? what happens, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Cheers. See you later. Bye-bye.